Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects, a music and mental health podcast. Welcome back to Sound Effects, everybody. My guest in this episode is James McMahon, former features editor of NME and editor of Kerrang! This episode is about music journalism and mental health and specifically we're going to be talking about OCD. We start off first talking about music journalism and how James got into working at NME as a features editor, which is where I met him, and then how his career developed into becoming the editor of Kerrang! and a journalist in general um, as a freelancer now. That then leads into a discussion around the environment of music journalism and how it can be a hotbed for all sorts of chaotic instances that really create that sort of environment and conditioning for where something like OCD can really manifest because of the uncertainty in the world of music journalism and then we go into the OCD part of his process and what it was like for him specifically and then we kind of move into more of a discussion about music and how it impacts us generally and how that helps or alleviates or works with OCD for him. This interview kind of dips in and out of those three areas. I really hope that you enjoy it. You'll hear James and I making lots of references to things like intrusive thoughts, intrusive images, and I wanted to explain what those things are before we start so that when you start to hear us talk about them, you don't get confused and wonder why are we talking about this. If you don't want to hear me talking for the next 20 minutes about OCD, you can skip forward right now to the interview itself, which is at 19 minutes 30 seconds, and I'll see you on the other side. Otherwise, stay with me here and I'll talk you through intrusive thoughts and images and what OCD is. common to hear somebody describe themselves as a little bit OCD, which doesn't really make sense. OCD stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder and the emphasis is on this word disorder. It's a disproportionate experience. To have the disorder, it's got to be affecting your life to such an extent that you simply can't function or you can function but it really has a detrimental impact on your life, on your work, on your relationships and can be really devastating. People erroneously often believe that OCD is about checking things and being ultra tidy or being very organised in a stringent manner. That's not true and that's not OCD. I think it's quite important to get across actually how harrowing this disorder is. People suffer with it and I use the word suffer deliberately. The 
suffering part of OCD is about what's going on inside the brain. When we think of obsessions and compulsions, we tend to focus too much on the compulsions and on the behaviour, like people tapping things and checking things. A better way to understand the process is to think about what is causing those compulsions in the first place. Let's begin with intrusive images. I want you to just think for a moment about a time in your life where you might have been doing something really innocuous like washing the dishes or walking down the road and suddenly a really random image will pop up in your head and it will be really taboo like you picture somebody that you know naked or suddenly you're walking down the street and you imagine licking a dog shit or picking up a knife and hurting yourself with it or you're on the train tracks uh, waiting for a train and you get this sudden urge to jump and you don't want to jump but you get this sudden urge to and it creeps you out a little bit. Well these experiences have a name, they're called intrusive images and we have things called intrusive thoughts and urges too. James and I talk a lot about these in this episode and just to be clear everybody has these, everybody gets them. They're absolutely not the same thing as a hallucination, it's not the same thing as hearing things, that's something completely different. But intrusive images can just come to us out of the blue and can be really shocking. And intrusive thoughts are very, very similar, but they're usually, they're usually a what-if kind of thought. These images and thoughts usually contain content that are either religious, blasphemous or very violent in nature and usually they're connected to the things in society that we actually find quite abhorrent and if we, we naturally tend to not admit to them because they feel a little bit like we're going to be judged if we tell anyone about them. To understand OCD, it's really, really crucial, first of all, that you understand that because it's a very crucial factor in what begins the OCD process. The reason why we get these images is not that well known, but, but they can be understood in terms of the context that we live in. We're very used to watching the news 24-7, and a lot of the news is polarised between things that are absolutely wonderful or things that are terrible to us. And in recent years, especially with the increase in social media, that comes at a cost. We are constantly being bombarded with images of violence and negativity and we are always hearing about really awful, awful tragedies and horrifying things like murder, paedophilia, world disasters, climate change. This decade has been littered with this stuff. Only looking at the back of this year, we've been inundated with information about coronavirus and spreading disease and issues of racism have also been huge. Essentially, things are either perfect or awful, with very little in between. We're primed to believe that if we're not on top of our game, then we're in the gutter. This actually plays on people who are prone to feeling shame and perfectionism. So 
So every decade, there'll be a focus on an issue in the news that becomes really topical. In previous years, we've heard of huge scandals around Jimmy Savile, and before that, there were lots of reports of murder and abductions. For example, Madeleine McCann and Ian Huntley are some that just spring to mind. In the 80s, one of the biggest news stories we had was around HIV and AIDS, and of course, there wasn't much understanding at the time of what this was, and we didn't know how it spread, and there was a lot of fear-mongering going on, and a lot of shaming going on at the time. And it really played on people. This is crucial in the understanding of the OCD process. If you take someone who is very highly moral with a high level of empathy, who is also quite highly prone to shame and quite perfectionist, and then you expose them to these horrors of society, what will happen to someone with OCD is they take that horror and they actually imagine it, absorb it, and it's really difficult to shake off. So if you are washing the dishes and one of those intrusive images comes to mind of picking up a knife and stabbing someone, which by the way is a very, very common one, someone without OCD might just think, well, that was odd, and then get on with their life. But someone with OCD can't shake that off. It becomes haunting to them. And because of all those news stories and the priming that we've had and the conditioning we've had around what these things mean, um, someone with OCD will start to interpret their images and thoughts as more than what they actually mean. say you're doing the dishes and you get a flash of stabbing someone with a knife, someone with OCD will fixate on that and the, the first thing is they'll be horrified by it, they might have a physical reaction to it, they might cringe or feel a bit ill or sick and they will think, well what does that mean? Why did I think that? Why did that image come to my mind? Is there something wrong with me? Does it mean that I want to stab someone? Do I secretly have these desires to do these things? Um, and then they'll take it further. They'll say, does that mean I'm secretly a murderer without knowing it? Like, what if I act on it? What if people knew that? And it spirals and spirals and it escalates and it becomes an obsession and it's really torture. It's not easy to get rid of. It becomes this rumination. It doesn't matter what you do to try and forget about it. It doesn't go away. It becomes really haunting and you'll find all the loopholes. You'll look for all the reassurances out of it and you end up in a kind of catch-22 loop. This is where the compulsions come in. Someone with OCD having these thoughts will start to try and do everything they can to get rid of these thoughts and suppress them because they just feel so abhorrent. And the pressure to get rid of these thoughts just gets higher and the ways of coping also gets higher to reduce the impact. So typically, if I refer to the knife imagery, you might start hiding your knives or you might not even go out. You might develop agoraphobia because you're scared of who you are, even though you're not that at all, but you think you are. And you start to avoid doing something so that you don't put yourself at risk. And you're so convinced that you're a risk, even when 
you're not, that you start to act as if you are. And so you might start asking somebody, do you think this of me? Are you sure? But what if? You're constantly upping the stakes to get more reassurance. And then what's quite common is things like praying internally or counting or repeating mantras to try and suppress and get rid of the thoughts. And that can become more and more progressive as well what we know about OCD and this is true is that the more you try to suppress these images and thoughts actually the worse the thoughts become um, so understanding that is so important for the person going through OCD and also for anyone who's living with someone who suffers People with OCD don't act on their images and thoughts ever and that's what makes it so tragic because um, it really feels to them like they're afraid they're going to act on them when in reality they never do. Because these thoughts are quite taboo a lot of people are scared of uh, speaking out. Well, why do we get intrusive thoughts and images in the first place? Well, they usually occur in times of un uncertainty and transition. Very often, um, people with OCD will say that when they're in a period of stress, they tend to get worse. And this is the case for a lot of people. Sometimes the first uh, manifestation of OCD can happen in a time of great transition. So even if it appears on the surface that our lives are going really well, for example, we might have just got promoted or we've just discovered that we're pregnant, our bodies tap into the fact that um, something in our life is changing and is different and although we're attending to all the practical things in our life on the surface, underneath our bodies are attuned and quite sensitive to the fact that change is on the horizon. When there's change on the horizon, this taps us into a kind of existential anxiety. Um, you can think of it like tectonic plates that sort of shake us to the core and up bubbles all this lava and all the stuff of our past and all our fears and anxieties rise to the surface, even if it seems like everything is going well for us. You know, as mammals, we are ultimately governed by a biological need for homeostasis, so we will always seek to find equilibrium. But because there's no certainty in this moment of transition, in creeps doubt, and this equilibrium can't quite complete itself. It's like our minds are freewheeling. And very often this is exactly how it feels, that no matter what we do to try and find an answer or a solution, our minds just keep freewheeling and freewheeling and can feel trapped in this process. Ultimately you're trying to make what's uncertain certain and it's a futile process. This is why OCD is quite common in new mothers and you can start to see that in the current pandemic we're in, why this might be quite a fertile ground for these kinds of anxious experiences. 
Usually there are specific themes that surround intrusive thoughts and images. So I mentioned before you can have taboo thoughts around violence and blasphemy. There's specific types so you can have preoccupations with harm and pain or causing harm to other people or to yourself. You can be preoccupied with religion and sin. That's particularly for people who've been brought up in a very religious moral household but not always. Um, often the thoughts can be around um, sex, sexuality and sexual deviance. Often they can be very violent and sometimes they're around health and disease and germ-based. You know, we're most likely to be preoccupied by the one that feels the most taboo and that would bring up the most amount of shame for us in our particular context. So for example, in the case of a new mother, a mother is likely to get preoccupied over thoughts of harming her baby, whilst a middle-aged man may be preoccupied with sexual deviance. You may have heard of a term called pure O, which stands for pure obsessional thoughts. This is a relatively new term that's developed um, alongside OCD. This simply means that you get the intrusive thoughts and images and urges without the explicit visible compulsions. But actually, you'll still be engaged in rituals, so it's not that the compulsions aren't there necessarily with Puro, it's just that you can't see them, they're not as noticeable, but they will be noticeable to the person going through it. James makes a, a reference to Puro in this episode, so I thought I'd just mention what that is here. Um, it's a really silent disorder because people will actually go for years and years without other people knowing that they're going through this suffering internally. It's not until you meet somebody and hear of other people who are going through that very same thing that you realise it's actually got a name and it's called OCD and then it clicks that this, this actually is a thing and many people have it. And now finally, getting help for it. Currently, estimates approximately 1 in 40 adults and 1 in 100 children have this condition. It's probably a lot more than that because many, many people don't realise they have it or even if they do have it, don't admit to it. It can take a long, long time to get a diagnosis. This is really quite detrimental for people with OCD because things can spiral quite rapidly. Very many doctors and professionals sadly don't always understand or recognise the symptoms straight away. There are many who do and of course I'll give you all sorts of information at the end of this episode about support groups and contact details for you to get any kind of help or support if you need to and also to help a loved one if you think they're going through something similar. So you might be listening to this now and you might be thinking that this relates to you. So if it does, I do hope that this episode helps you in some way. 
James is really open about his experiences and I really appreciate that. I really hope that you enjoy it. I've added some humorous bits quite deliberately because it is a very serious issue and I don't take it lightly. But as James says himself at points, we need to sometimes find the humour in the situation and in our humanity. I'll just leave you to listen to this interview now and um, I hope it's helpful. So it was 2008 I met you when I joined NME as a freelancer, I was a freelance sub-editor. You were the features editor at the time and I think Connor McNicholas was the editor. Chrissy Morrison was there, I remember Alex Miller and Hamish McBain, you all together and I had this memory of, I was like 24, 25 and kind of joining this place that I'd dreamt about working for years. And just being kind of in awe and mesmerised by what was going on and the, the kind of utter chaos of it as well, like the music blaring, the CD wars, <laughs> um, people shouting across the tables, like the fights between the subs and the writers, all of that. And um, so you obviously have, you know, you knew that world. So I kind of wanted to begin there and what that was like for you working at NME. It felt like... I mean, I think that my story, uh, my route to it, it was, is actually quite similar to yours in that it was, from the moment I discovered Enemy, I mean, it just became an obsession. That it was the only thing I really wanted to do with my life. Um, I didn't even want to be a journalist or a writer. I just wanted to be an Enemy writer. And um, it was, I mean, it's no exaggeration to say it was possibly with the exception of me and my wife, like the greatest thing that I've ever done. I, you know, I worked so hard for it as a freelancer to basically kind of get in the office, working class kid up north, made a whole load of sacrifices. But it really was, there's a guy called Pat Long, who was, uh, I think he might have been reviews editor at the time when, when, when you were there, but he uh, sadly passed away the other year and he's been on my mind quite a lot recently. And I remember he was sort of somewhat of a mentor to me at various times. And I remember him saying to me, you know, soak this up, like, you'll never, you'll never have another job like this. Like, I didn't really uh, pay heed to that. Uh, and when I left Enemy, which was 2010, I was definitely in a very bad place with what I now know is OCD. And I had the usual young, angry man frustrations about where I'd worked and, you know, almost sort of felt liberated when I left the place and, you know, could almost like reclaim my life as being more than just the enemy because when I worked there, I mean, my whole life was the enemy. Mm. But I look back at it now with just such, just such love and affection and, I mean, it was just one of the, it was just amazing. I mean, it's sort of hard to explain to people. I mean, it was like, it was a living hell with my head. Mm. But it was, you know, I got married the other year. There was, you know, four people I worked at Enemy with. They turned up absolutely terrified, our other guests, just by being four Enemy journalists. And it was just, you know, during lockdown, a load of Enemy people, ex-Enemy people have been jumping on Zooms and catching up and, you know, sort of trying to be there for each other and, for a place that could be like so combative and so, I don't know, just full of, you know, egos and 
passions and anger and, and all this kind of stuff. You know, really what came out of certainly my generation was just this feeling of we were all a gang and we were all really trying to do something that we thought was important, which was, you know, championing music that changed our lives and trying to change other people's lives, you know? So, I mean, it, it must have been... I found a photo the other day as a photographer called Tom Oxley and he sent me a load of photographs from my era and there's one of being in the office and it just uh, I mean it just sent like I just had a goosebumps you know because I looked at it and I was like god the office was so messy and you know there's like magazines all over the floor and my desk is a disgrace in the, the stereotype perception of OCD there's no way you could look at my desk and go oh yeah that guy's got OCD mm. but yeah man it was just it was just amazing you know it was, mm. just, it was just utterly amazing especially me coming to London at 25 I've been freelance for kind of three years you know, within a week, I'm interviewing you two at Coldplay and going to Brazil and New Zealand. And, you know, again, as I'm sure we'll come to, like, not the greatest of lifestyles, you know, for a, you know, for a young man with a disorder that I have now know I have, but wouldn't have changed it for anything in the world. It was just magic. That's the thing that you're saying, all those trips abroad, that's something that I guess wouldn't happen now so much in journalism. People don't travel really in the way that I remember it being at the time. I just think so much of the money's gone. Mm. Like I think I was a couple of weeks into being staff at Enemy, and uh, another staffer said to me, "Do you fancy going to a, a meatloaf party tonight? There's a launch party for about Health Three." And I was like, yeah, "Whatever, you know, like cool. That sounds fun." And I went to this launch party, it was in Holborn, and there was like, uh, there was like animatronic crows and like the sort of weird robotic skeletons and all the people serving the volavons were like dressed up as, you know, zombies and vampires. And there was a massive like banqueting table in the middle of the room with a Harley Davidson like sat on top, sort of smashing it in half. And I remember being like, this is the music industry. Mm. Uh, and, um, <laughs> it feels a little bit like from that moment the money started to run out. Because I remember leaving being like, oh, it's going to be like this every week. But mm. it wasn't really like that every week. Mm. But I don't know. Um, I went to, before the chaos of this year, I went to San Francisco uh, for The Guardian to do Green Day, which was which was, really, which was an, you know, an amazing trip. Like, to say it was 2020. And uh, I, I went and worked in video games journalism for a while. And that was you go all over the place with that, you know, because it's such a profitable industry. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's sort of still there, but, you know, music, at some point someone thought it would be a genius idea to make music free. I mean, yeah. I feel like it's something that's sort of maybe starting to come to regret now, but I, I'm not, it's not a kind of like, oh, well, what someone think of the journalist thing? I just think even, even being in a band today is so difficult. When I was a the rock magazine, you know, we'd sometimes put a band on the cover and you were trying to arrange photo shoots, you know, to be on the cover of like what was then the biggest weekly music magazine in the world. Mm. And they'd be trying to work out their shifts, you know, prep. It was almost like kind of being in a band was like sort of a, not a hobby, it wasn't to them, of course, but it wasn't something you did if you wanted to make any more than you. Well, you, um, thinking what you're saying there about egos, and I'm thinking about what, what you think created that at NME. I think, I don't know, ego's a complicated one, I guess. It, it might be the wrong word. I certainly know in myself, I was absolutely, and you know, amplified by the OCD, like an absolute ball of insecurity and uh, unconfidence, and, you know, even 
even a large dollop of self-loathing in there, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think actually even my friends who, you know, Hamish McBain, Alex Miller, Mark McLaren, who was the he was the chief the production editor for a long time. Joe Frost, who was the art editor. You know, they were, you know, like titans in the office. But, you know, you go to the pub and they have the same neuroses that any, you know, that anyone out, anyone in any walk of life has. Um, I just think that with Enemy, it was, I don't know, it was almost like a little bit like um, a bit of a shark tank, you know, like you kind of had to, I mean, I, to be honest, I'm making that sound, I'm making that sound far more negative than it actually was. I just think ultimately what it came down to was that we all really believed in what we were doing. Mm. And, the con- you know, it's hard to find consensus with any kind of creative outlet where, you know, I've been in bands, I've made, you know, made, fanzines of you know doing podcasts all sorts of things and I absolutely love for making things and doing things but actually finding kind of consensus with other people is you know very difficult um because I do feel like a lot of the best stuff that's made is uh, comes from a place of like one vision so there was always that you know kind of friction and I do think in a sense you know I look back on our era of enemy you know I kind of sometimes pick up an old magazine where I've got to refer to something I've wrote or an article someone else has wrote and I just think you can sort of feel like the sort of electricity on the page really I'm not saying that I kind of work for enemy and it's greatest era you know it's like the music industry was collapsing and I often found myself really struggling to find the music that excited me but actually you know I don't think it was a great era for music really but I certainly think that when I read the magazine I go god there's so much creativity there you know there's so many um you know and that, that continued after i left and that was there before it wasn't something you know that was totally unique to me but i just think that actually all those different personalities and you know probably taking into account the you know neuroses and the you know neurodivergent sides of people like kind of helped make it what it was and there's something about that Wanting to work there specifically, you said, you know, you did, it's not even that you wanted to necessarily be a writer, but you knew you wanted to be an NME. What was it about NME that you really were drawn to? Well, I just, I'm 40, mm-hmm. and uh, I, you know, I was into music, you know, before this, but, you know, Nirvana were this, you know, absolute turning point for me. Like, you know, when you hear older people talk about punk or like acid house or whatever like they always talk about like a before and an after and that's really what you know Nirvana were for me when I was 13, 14 and I think the first time I came across Enemy was when Kurt was on the cover you know the tribute issue when he, he died and I just remember reading it and it was like nothing it was like nothing else that I'd ever read like it was funnier it was clever like it turned me on to new things like not even like music but you know you know say if you if you invested in like the Manistry Preachers it was like a gateway to you know poetry and politics and it was just certainly pre-internet in Doncaster you know not really with all respect to the place like a creative hub I mean it just felt like you know once a week a spaceship turned up and took you to this amazing planet that was just totally unlike your life. And I just wanted to be part of that. And you know, again, it's a, I think it's a, a classically OCD trait. There's a certain kind of like focus, uh, well, obsessiveness, you know, about the things that we latch onto. And, uh, certainly Enemy became, became that. 
I actually don't even think, you know, like there's been times in my life, like post enemy, where I've actually thought, oh, well, this isn't actually, if you were going to go back in time and speak to like a, a very young me and go, hey, what do you want to do with your life? I think there's things I actually would have liked to have done even more than enemy. Yeah. But enemy became this, for some reason, enemy became this thing where, you know, I would talk to careers advisors about it and they would go, huh? And then suggest that I maybe go get a trade or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. But because of that, it became, I have to do this. Like, there's no, um, there's no alternative. Mm. You, I think I remember once reading something that you wrote about being at school and having a careers advisor sort of dashed your dream a bit and that sort of fueled your passion to kind of inspire other people to follow what they want. What what was that like then for you growing up? Was there was there a sense that you you know people just wouldn't you wouldn't be allowed to do something like that by you know by that? And it's weird, like I've been. You know, I've always had kind of school friends I've kept in touch with since leaving. Mm. Um, but actually recently, and it might be an age thing, I've been kind of reconnecting with a bunch of people I was at school with. And it's interesting to hear their adult takes on things that we would have never have discussed when I was a kid. Um, you know, I wasn't like especially bullied like when I was at school. I look back in school with like a lot of fondness, but I did have almost what I would describe as the worst... I mean, it was kind of as bad as I think it could have been, you know, for for a, a year or so when I was very young. And I was just such a, I was such a, I was such a weird kid, you know. I mean, I say that with like affection and like not wanting to change that about myself. But you know, I was, you know, when the other boys played football, I love football. But you know, when the other boys played football, I would read video games, magazines. You know, like when the other boys were talking to girls, I would draw. I just had a total sort of like different take on things and I just think that I mean like I say I'm no expert on uh, the British education system or you know being it being so long since I was at school but I definitely think for me going to a comprehensive it was they just didn't know what to do with me and they weren't really bothered about what to do with me mm. um, I mean again you know I look back and I think I think of certain traits and kind of like the way that I was and certain things I did and things I said and I think oh that was OCD you know, that was one of the things that was going on then. But, you know, if I was, I was always making fanzines. I was always, you know, trying to put bands together. I was always, you know, carrying around a music magazine. And you would have a teacher saying, oh, hey, have you done your Latin homework? You know, it, it wasn't like a place where they took what, it, it, it wasn't a place where they basically kind of identified individuality with kids and nurtured that it was you know I mean when I was at school like the pit was still open like I'm from a pit village in Armthorpe and there was a pit the pit was still open um, and it was like that for years was the route you know it was like you went to this school um, you know and I sort of knew the pits were you know were on their way out like you know by the time I sort of worked out what I was going to try and do with my life but there was always that kind of fear of I can't do that like I'll, I'll last 10 seconds you know one of the things that I was saying about reconnecting with old school friends was that they have been kind of... It's really interesting to see how... Well, it's really interesting when other people tell you how they see you, you know, because it can sometimes be so different to how you see yourself. And I don't I don't think... I mean, maybe it's just the kids I'm speaking to, but they, they talk about me as having a load of confidence and a load of being really steadfast in who I was and what I wanted to do. But, man, it, was, it wasn't like that in the head, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there was a real difference between the way they were seeing you and the way you felt at the time. They they thought you were 
confident? Well, I think one of the things that happened a bit was that when I was, I would say that I had my first proper like intrusive thought, like a proper off the wall, completely irrational OCD thought when I was 14. Mm. And it was so, I mean, I mean, it just, it just changed my life, you know, really, like sucked a load of the joy and peace and sort of sense of stillness about me for you know decades like it, it was that kind of turning point and it's just kind of interesting when I speak to those old school friends and you know they talk about me being this confident assured you know funny creative dude when it was just like World War Three going on in my head you know yeah, was that the answer to the question? I'm not sure it was. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's it's really interesting. Like wherever you take me, I'm, I'll follow you there. So, <laughs> um, I such a therapist thing. So. Yeah, but it's um, it's really interesting what you're saying there because I I think that is the experience for so many people who who experience this sort of you know any kind of mental health issue or any kind of hardship it can feel like there is a gulf between what's going on inside of you and what's going on out there and almost like they're two completely different worlds or two completely different narratives and it can feel quite lonely well sometimes you know even aside from you know whatever so like with OCD, you know, like we talk, I go to an OCD support group every week and we talk about this all the time um, and we talk about, you know, where OCD comes from. You know, we all basically kind of concede that it isn't really important to the treatment, but just because we've all got inquiring minds to inquire it really, mm. um, we're always trying to think where it comes from and, you know, ultimately, all of that aside, there's been times in my adult life where I've just thought, really all I've been trying to do in my life is just trying to have the freedom to be me. You know, like, I don't feel like I came into the world confused about who I was at all. Like, mm. you know, I'm very self-aware. I think I'm hugely empathetic. You know, I think I'm, you know, flawed and stuff. I can totally, like, see my faults as well. But, you know, ultimately what it comes down to is that I would just like to, I would just like to live my life and be me. And, and I feel like school or those younger days were just, you know, I had, I, I had a mum that was so... Uh, encouraging, supportive, loving, and, you know, really like a best friend. Um, I had a dad who had his own stuff going on, who, you know, was desperate for me to be less complicated and be a man. Really complicated family situation beyond that. At a school that was just really kind of savage. Like, you know, if you walked home from school, you would just see horrendous things. Like, you would just see people being beaten up so badly or... Um, you know, it was just a very, very rough, I don't mean rough in a sort of like a snobby classist way, but it, for someone like myself, who uh, I, I think is quite soft on the inside, seeing seeing some of that stuff was really hard. And uh, and then you sort of like, you throw in like the discovery of punk rock and then, you know, music in a different world. And, and then you throw in kind of OCD. It was like just a lot of being pulled this way and that way. Um, when really I knew who I was and where I wanted to go, but didn't really kind of have the freedom to do that, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I feel like actually, to be honest, ever sort of ever since I've realised that, that's kind of what I've been trying to make my life, really, to, to make my life what I wanted it, you know, what I always wanted it to be, but, mm. um, you know, whether it's OCD or it's... And also, it's also the fact as well, I, I, I don't know whether it's the same now, but 
there was definitely something about, you know, people from my neck of the woods didn't admit that they were mentally ill. You know, like, I don't want to say it's a Yorkshire thing, it wasn't a Yorkshire thing, but it was certainly, you know, just the understanding of mental health was just so minuscule. And I had a grandfather who was very mentally ill, and my mum had her childhood that kind of, you know, been defined by a lot of that stuff. So there was always like a sort of suspicion, like, you know, there was a, a view of mental health with suspicion and perhaps even rightly so, because I think that some of the treatment my granddad had, 50s, 60s stuff was, you know, draconian. So there was always, there was just a lot, there was just a lot going on, you know. And also I think the thing is, is, I've never really been a sort of woe is me guy. You know, I think other people are far worse, but you know, you can only kind of talk about your own lived experience. You know? mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's very particular to OCD it feeds into that fear factor, the the, the draconian element that you're describing of the fifties and sixties that imagery that people have of being sort of locked up somewhere in in some kind of mental institute. I think really plays on people, particularly who have OCD, the the fear that if you open up about what's going on for you, that you're going to somehow be judged and put in a box and told you're wrong or there's something wrong with you. I think that that plays so much a part of the OCD process. And then that feeds back to keeping silent. Um, oh, I mean, there's a thing of, I mean, you, you've raised a couple of really interesting points there. And I think that, you know, for example, so, so I, I don't like the, you know, it's become a popular term in recent years, but I don't like the term puro, you know, like mm. I think OCD is OCD. And mm. I think it's, gets, um, it's not particularly helpful, you know, divvying it up. But I guess just using that term, um, which I kind of, you know, interpret as internal compulsions as opposed to physical ones, which is, you know, I would say 95% of what is my disorder. You know, it's so, it's so hard to, you know, like, I know people who have, uh, they have OCD about their sexuality, you know, and that should be, you know, it's hard enough without adding OCD to the mix, you know. Yeah. You know, am I gay, am I straight? But when you had OCD and you're like, well, am I gay, am I straight, or is it just OCD that's making me think I'm gay? or straight or whatever and say there's something like so, so you know it's just so complicated but say I say I had a thought I, I had a thought I, I don't really sort of like I don't think it's useful to sort of talk about like specific experiences but I often roll this one out just to uh, try to explain to people who don't have an understanding of OCD of just how severe it could be but I had a thought um, in my 20s when I was enemy actually when I was at enemy uh, that people might think I was a serial killer and uh, based on uh, someone said something in the office I laughed I thought they might think that laugh was too enthusiastic or and that would be something that I would ruminate on and then I and then I would basically devote uh, hours of a day when I was at work to trying to convince them that I wasn't a serial killer you know, so there is that kind of thing where uh, there is that kind of thing where you go. If I was to say that to someone, and eventually I did. Eventually, I just burst and started talking to friends and people about my, you know, intrusive thoughts and compulsion ruminations, and mm. you know, it all got very messy. But you know, there's always that feeling that you go, well, if I say this to someone, then they're going to think, well, why are you actually saying this to me? And then they're going to go, um, oh, maybe that person actually is this. Mm. And then, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or like. 
so it's not even as simple as like, oh, I'm going to kind of be locked up, but it's almost like, it's almost like this kind of a silent, almost like a secret torment. Mm. And I guess that I kind of, before I, before I found myself to the right kind of treatment for it, I guess that the only way that I found to combat it was to own it. And I don't think it was necessarily like the greatest way to deal with it long term, but it was kind of all I knew, I knew. And ultimately, I think OCD comes from a place of almost like trying to make yourself feel safe. Mm your brain getting it wrong mm. um, there was something that you said and I really wanted to follow up on but I totally forgot what it is there I mean what I will say is that I just never I just never really had a problem about speaking out yeah. like for me like mm. I and I totally understand why people do you know mm. I just think that um, I've kind of remembered actually I'll come back to it okay. I never really had a problem speaking out you know I was kind of big enough my mum before huge influence on my life and you know we used to talk endlessly about how we felt about things you know like that was a thing you know ironically my dad didn't you know which created its own problems but me and my mum she'd always you know from being a little kid like how do you feel about this you know yeah. tell me how you feel express yourself yeah. uh, so I've never really had that problem but sometimes the problem with that is that you can't if you don't say with me with my own situation like when you don't know what is OCD and what is yeah. you know that's a hard thing so yeah. you know the one of the big moments in my um, journey with this disorder was when I was at university when I was 19. And one day, uh, everything was okay. And the next day, I decided I had AIDS and had 12 months of just uh, madness. And in my head, as like a child of the 80s, like grown up with like terrifying adverts, you know, public information adverts voiced by John Hurt on television. In my head, it was, it was the right thing to take that seriously. You know, it was like, oh, well, maybe I have AIDS. Now I need to go for an AIDS test, you know. But then when I was going for an AIDS test six times in a year or obsessing that uh, I might have spread it on a piping glass or all the things that, you know, are myths about, you know, mm-hmm. AIDS, which is thankfully something better understood now. Mm-hmm. If I'd just gone all that, if I'd just known I was OCD, then I would have treated it like OCD. And I think a lot of OCD isn't really about talking about things, you know. I think it's... It's not really about investigating the, the things at all, you know. It's about living with a thought, but dismissing it as not something. It's something you don't have time for, or something that has no relevance to your life. But if you don't know it's OCD, then you, you kind of go down that rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing I was sort of saying, I think it, I, I wanted to say, and I think that this might only be slightly tenuously linked to what we're talking about. But at this point, I've totally lost the narrative anyway. So I'll just say, is there was a massive thing. There was a massive part of me that when I realised, and it was before I knew it was OCD, but when I realised that there was something inverted commas wrong, where I was like, I really don't want this to take away from my experience of life. You know, like I don't, I mean, this has never changed really, but you know, when I woke up this morning, I had like an hour of just thinking the scariest, most upsetting, scared, fearful thoughts, you know, and, and that's kind of been my life for years. And if I gave into it, um, if I actually kind of like followed how I feel, I don't think I would do anything in my life. Like, I don't think I would have a wife. I don't think I would have friends. I don't think I would have, you know, a job, let alone a what I think is a cool job to me. Mm. Um, so there was always this part of me, and it sort of, you know, comes back to my mum as well, that was always like, you got to keep fighting, you got to keep trying it. And although a lot of what I chose to do for a living, I think actually feeds my OCD. You know, I think it's a very difficult job to do with, with the disorder that I have, but I wanted to see the world. You know, and I wanted to, you know, live a life, experience things to be more than this kid from Doncaster that they, you know, the, the powers that be said wouldn't really amount to anything. 
you know so and I think that's been so important really to my journey with OCD is that that's the thing that sort of stopped me from becoming really ill you know um and there was a kind of there was a reason why I was saying that but as I say I can't remember sorry that's all right no worries it might come back to you at some point (laughs) yeah just jump in when I blame I blame Trump I blame Trump for almost (laughs) you know 95% of everything wrong with the world right now but certainly he's the reason why I'm a bit groggy uh this morning I know that you'd had some issues with sleep recently. Yeah, no, it was it was it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, just rammed right in the middle of lockdown. I mean, I've never really been like a great sleeper anyway. Mm-hmm. Definitely could do with losing some weight. I love you know I love two a.m. You know, like I love <laughs> the wee hours. You know, it's the sort of the time when I really want to make things and do things and stuff. But I just sort of got myself. You know, sometimes you hear people who've got themselves into you know problems in their life and they talk about you know they can't almost sort of see how that happened and I totally relate to that because I went from being someone who would stay up to two o'clock in the morning and watching you know watching a horror movie to being someone who just couldn't go to sleep like and I became like almost scared of going to sleep and the OCD would just kick in you know three o'clock in the morning four o'clock in the morning my wife's not about uh, it's just me on the sofa just ruminating just obsessing about everything and then you know before you know it I think you know I think my record was something like four days without sleep my wife would come into you know the room that I use as an office at home she'd um, just find my head on the laptop with a you know a letter of the alphabet kind of just running left to right left to right across the page Um, you know and then I didn't really understand what was happening so I would you know drink coffee and drink more coffee and then drink more coffee. I mean, it was just a disaster. And um, started sleepwalking. There was one there was one night that I woke up like as my head hit the floor. So I, li- I, li- I literally woke up with like the floor like an inch away from my face and then I hit the floor. Like it was unbelievable. And at that point, you know, my wife basically insisted that I had to go to A&E. So I went to A&E. But I mean, it was chaos in there uh, when, I got, when I actually got admitted. Um, you know, they put me on a geriatric ward, uh, which is fine, you know, like you go where the beds are, but I don't think they quite understood how bad it was because I was, you know, headbutting the soap dispenser, you know, on the wards, but I didn't know I was doing it, you know, I was just that kind of sleep deprived and out of it. All respect to the nurses, you know, but, you know, they would sort of deal with that by, you know, almost like shouting at me, you know, like, what's wrong with you, you know, and you'd be a bit like, I mean, now I'll go, well, I mean, that's what I was there to be told what was wrong with me, but at the time it was, I was just so out of it. And actually, to be honest, like, I, in the end, I kind of, uh, they did a psychological assessment, all of my notes on my record are about, uh, I've got loads of, I've got a referral from the Priory um, on my medical records, so that's kind of, you know, useful for for people who don't particularly understand OCD, which mm-hmm. I think there's a frightening amount of people like in the NHS who mm-hmm. don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, so they basically had the psychological assessment, um, but that work has sort of already been done for them. But they also told me I had uh, sleep apnea, so they managed to give me a CPAP machine, which is the machine you, you have on your nozzle that mm-hmm. keeps you breathing. Uh, consistently throughout the night and it, and it's still lows for me you know like you know me and my wife have a bit of a uh, I mean it's a, it's a game it's a crap game it's not football or you know Street Fighter 2 but 
you know, where we'll wake up in the morning and almost be like, how long do you do on the machine? And, you know, you press the buttons and stuff and you're like, oh, I've had five hours, I've had six hours of just straight sleep, which I haven't had for just decades, mm. you know. And it was also as well, like, just a job as well, you know, just doing this for a living. I'm sure you'll relate, you know, with your experiences as, as a journalist. But, you know, when I was editing a magazine, I, you know, I thought about that, you know, 24-7. Often you'd be interviewing people, or, you know, even now, but interviewing people in different time zones. I don't know. It's, it's really, it really taught me that this summer just, I always, always saw sleep as a sort of inconvenience and now I really kind of see it as a necessity. So mm-hmm. something good did come out of it, but it was, it was hard and especially in the middle of, um, you know, what the situation that we're all in right now. Yeah. I'm really interested in what you're saying about sleep, you know, because, uh, my, my memory of, um, so when, when I was experiencing OCD, so just for the sake of the listeners, I might just mention what an intrusive thought an image is, because essentially it's it's like, um, they're kind of like um, taboo thoughts that enter into your mind, um, well they can come as thoughts or even images that are quite scary, and you, usually they're the, they're the thoughts of you being the, the most scary thing you could ever imagine being and then thinking that's what you are and then you sort of terrifying yourself that it means you must be that thing because the thought came into your mind and sort of um going on to this sort of cycle of trying to not be that thing and hoping you're not it and doing everything you can not to be but being convinced you are it's, a, it's such a horrible experience to have and I'm thinking about, um, for me, I had a fear of um, knives. And I remember being afraid to go to sleep because uh, I didn't want to sleepwalk and accidentally stab someone. So it was like it developed this sort of fear that if I went to sleep, I'd sleepwalk and stab someone. And so therefore going to sleep was a major issue. So I'm just really intrigued about how sleep comes into that a lot. Yeah, no, totally. I, I think... Um... I mean, ultimately, the thing I've learned uh, beyond anything is that when I'm sleeping properly, which, you know, I seem to be at the moment, mm. like, I'm in a position to fight OCD. Mm. And when I'm not sleeping properly, um, I'm just at a total disadvantage. You know, the intrusive thoughts are more common, like, more regular, the harder to dislodge. Mm. There's one, there's an interesting thing you were just saying, actually, about, it's strange with my stuff. Yeah, I, I sort of obviously you know about magical thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So you know the idea that um, a thought you have can influence the physical world. So I've had there's sort of a degree of that with with my stuff. You know, like if I see a certain colour car, then that is proof that the thing that I am obsessing about is true. You know, but I've always been able to kind of deal with that quite well. Of I've, I always have this mantra where I basically kind of say under my breath, of like, well, that's not how the world works, James. You know, I literally say that sentence, mm-hmm. and it sort of, I would say, ninety-nine percent of the time stops it from like growing. But the thing with like intrusive thoughts is, and I think that my stuff is slightly different in, from a lot of people in that it, it's less. Oh, I wonder if I am this thing. You know. Mm-hmm. Which again is you know horrendous and massive solidarity to anyone who has experienced that. But it's my thing is a lot more hung up on kind of like what people think, you know, like, and it's that thing of the worst time in the world to be having that is at three in the morning. You know, I have a couple of uh, you know a couple of friends you know through work are in America, and you know our entire relationships are conducted 
at three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning because they're the only people around and I'm in, I, I can't be in my own head at that time, you know. Mm. But I'm, you know, those friendships will endure, but I'm sort of pleased that uh, I'm not speaking to them very often at the moment because I'm sleeping and therefore I'm going into the day, you know, with reserves in the tank where I can, you know, where I can, where I can fight it. Mm. Yeah. Sorry about that with uh, the knives, though. That's um, it seems to be a it seems to be a um, depressingly common one from mm. the OCD circles that I kind of walk in. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, of knives, and I think it's interesting because for me it was it was an acute experience, so I don't have it so much anymore. It was like this period of a couple of years where it was quite pronounced but that sort of opened up the empathy for you know because I think it's quite it's quite a sort of um abstract thing for people to sometimes get their head around when when they haven't been through it or don't know anyone with it to get into the mindset of what's going on um it's quite complex but it's once you understand it it's like yeah that it's a really tough thing to go through I mean I went to the um yeah, I mean, I always say, I always say to people, you know, if you don't know, you wouldn't know, and I hope you never have to know, mm. you know, because, mm. and there's a massive thing of, you know, when I found my OCD support group, I walked through the door terrified and thinking, oh, I made a terrible mistake here. I was still actually, when I started going, I was, I was still, there was a lot more resistance to even the idea that I had OCD, you know, I was like, oh, well, mm. you know, society's done such a good job of ramming home that you know, a misconception that it's about hand washing, that it's all about hand washing or tidiness or whatever. Mm. Um, but I remember walking in and hearing people talk, and it was just like I found my people, you know, like, mm. um, you know, I was hearing people talk about experiences that distressed me so much in my life that I thought were, you know, confined to only myself, and there was just such euphoria about that really and I found that group on the back of uh, the one time in my life where I really felt like OCD in that like I'd sort of stopped being a high functioning person and I'd become an ill person and uh, been really had a very bad time with it and that's what led me to the group and I remember coming home and telling my wife about it and she just burst into tears because there was just such this, this relief of oh you know we weren't on our own with it anymore I mean, that group's been absolutely... I mean, I'd, I'd do anything for that group. I think I said before about enemy being, you know, like the second best thing I've done after meeting my wife. You know, group is around there as well. Um, it just changed my life. It was, you know, it was somewhere where I could go, well, this is the treatment I've been having. And they would go, well, that, you know, you shouldn't, be able, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have had that kind of treatment. This is the kind of treatment you should have. And there was a consensus with everyone in the room and then I would go find that treatment and then that would lead me to, you know, getting myself together in a better way. And, you know, and, and there's something I think, uh, there's something that makes you feel so much better when you can do good for other people as well. It's sometimes like if they, uh, when he was saying about how hard it is to kind of understand that I met a, I met a mum uh, who her kids, a teenage kids have been I'm trying to work out how to phrase this because you know it's obviously group and you kind of want to keep things yeah you know, yeah. You know what I mean but yeah. her, her kid had um, her kid had OCD you know she obviously like adored her kid you know like adored you know her son um, was frightened because you know she didn't know how to help him and you know there's been a few instances like that and you know I'll always kind of try to help as much as I can in to pass on the knowledge that I have because I find that knowledge about OCD is almost like, you know, 
it's like finding little gold nuggets, you know, like you've got to really kind of like dig for them. Mm. Um, and then when you get them, you can't hoard them, you know, you need to share them because they're so hard to come by. And uh, I remember texting my mum after speaking to this this other mum with her son and, um, you know, thanking her for like how hard she tried to understand OCD. Um, and I'm not sure she even really understands it now because like I say, if you don't know, you don't know. But I think, I think to be honest, you know, without being... Without wanting to sound a little bit like that, I, that this is like my purpose in life anymore because you know I, I just want to live a happy life and make things and so on. But I do feel kind of quite driven to help people with OCD as much as I possibly can do, mm. or like change. Not you know I'm not really like one of those you know I think that break the stigma is a bit of a vacuous expression really in 2020. But I certainly am someone who would really like for there to not be other 20-year-old James McMahons, like, just not understanding what on earth was happening to them. Like, that's, that's quite a, a thing for me, you know. Mm. Yeah. For them to have a sense that they're not alone, there's other people sharing that experience and that there's a way out and there's people that share what they're going through and it's got a name, essentially. The name thing is so important. Mm. Just to know what you are, you know. Do you know, um, you know George Ezra, obviously? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the singer, like he recently talked about having OCD. Oh, okay. uh, I mean, I'm not a George Ezra fan, but I thought it was like the coolest thing because I mean, I, I just I didn't have anyone like that, you know. I didn't have so therefore, you know, there was shame and confusion, and, like so much confusion and disruption to my life. And, um, you know, I think OCD is horrendous for people around people with OCD. You know, like. You know, my wife and my mum deserve, deserve everything good in the, in the world, you know, for how much they've supported me in, in my, you know, in the most difficult times. And I just, I just, I just was, you know, again, quite moved to thinking, I you know, if I'd been a 20-year-old and there'd been a, they couldn't have George Ezra for me. And, you know, there just wasn't, OCD wasn't like in pop culture, you know, mm. like, or, or if it was, it was in a completely misunderstood way. Mm. I feel like now, like, you know, I do, you know, the OCD Chronicles, and I wish, I wish it's like a series of interviews I do with people with OCD, and I always try and kind of get to people who have, a, you know, like, um, have a profile of some sorts, because I'm always trying to kind of show, I, I just want to show people who have the same challenges I have, that they can be more than it. You know mm-hmm. that they can they can do the things they want to do in their lives. You know, and um, I think it's good. You know. I mean, with group, I'm like um, mm-hmm. I'm like uh, I have no uh, training or qualifications. I can't diagnose someone, but mm-hmm. because I do talk about my OCD with my friends, like like often, um, you know, I think that they will, you know, maybe see something of themselves in what I'm talking about, and I will always say to them, "Oh, you should come to my OCD group. Mm-hmm. They're really great people." Um, just listen in, see if it sounds a bit more like you, and then it's the starting point if you think it is you, you know. Um, and I think, you know, and I also think as well, I think we're, I think we live in a world right now that is, and I, and I say this with the massive caveat of, um, I say this with a massive caveat of, uh, no one knows where OCD comes from, but I think we're in a world right now that my gut is. They're in a world that is, um, you know, total fertile soil for a surge uh, cases of this horrible disorder. Yeah. You know, whether it's 
age of coronavirus, whether it's um, social media, whether it's just the, the how much more is asked of people in their lives. Um, so I almost feel a little bit like there's some sort of preparation for the future going on where it's like, you know, let's try and create a world where this disorder is much more understood because somewhere down the line, it's going to need to be more more understood, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Are, are you willing to share the name of your group? Or, um, yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's cool. This is called London OCD. Um, okay. I found them via the OCD UK directory. There's two two OCD charities, two main OCD charities, OCD UK and OCD Action. And uh, there's a list of support groups. Um, and I just found the one that was nearest to me. And um, they haven't been able to get rid of me since. Uh, but that's, I mean, I've got a, a recently, I've recently been, I'm still trying to come to terms with this a little bit, but I've recently been diagnosed with an eating disorder and not having a tremendous amount of joy getting the treatment that I think I need. Uh, it's all linked up with the OCD. Um, but I'm just about to try and find a support group for that as well because um, I just think that they're so helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, if it, if it can do half... You know, I, I have a problem with um, food and... Uh, it's, you know, linked to, like, so much of the way that we're made up. Um, it's, it's linked to, you know, matters of the mind. And uh, if, it can, if, if I can find a group that can do half of what the OCD group did for me, then I think I'll be in a much better place. So that's always the thing that I say to people who, you know, this, and it's, it's not a critique of the NHS, it's a critique of, you know, the funding of the NHS and what's been done to the NHS. I love the NHS, but... You know what has been done to it is evil, mm. and there's so little support for um, there's so little support for mental health. There's, there's, it, what is asked of people in terms of um, waiting times or the Kafkaesque uh, process of trying to get treatment. Um, you know, I think that I almost feel like we kind of have to look to the communities of people who who exist around a particular illness to like help us get what we need because like the way it should be is so flawed mm. um, there's a, a thing right now called Mad COVID mm. uh, which is an organisation which is set up by some friends of mine who have been raising money for a hardship fund for people with uh, mental health disorders uh, during this crazy time um, and I believe that they've raised £25,000 and I've given £24,000 back out and I sat in on one of their they did like a digital symposium the other day to talk about where they were at and the stories of what people had, uh, the stories you know I've just told you all about sleep right and what I kind of went through I mean it's just not a I mean, it just pales in comparison to some of the stories of, you know, these brave, proud people who've just been treated like animals during a time um, where, yeah, this, you know, the unavoidable situation in the world is just taking away the support systems that they needed for their mental health, you know, the, um, the way that they're getting treatment, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and I think about something like my COVID or groups like that, that not even just, you know, being there to give money to people who need to get a taxi to a hospital appointment or whatever, you know, which is kind of what it's there for, but just a community of it, you know, like, um, I think is just amazing and so inspiring. And, you know, it's unfortunate that that's kind of what people have to do right now, but it is amazing as well. Yeah, and one of the great things like I saw the on the criteria of guidelines for the lockdown, you can still attend group support groups. So um, that's not banned, which, which I was really glad to hear about. If people need to have group therapy or group support, they can still attend those. And we did, with, with, our, with our OCD support group, we didn't, uh, like we don't meet. Um, we do it all virtually at the moment. And I certainly miss me. I mean, I, I won't lie, but it's actually had those advantages in, in a way as well in that uh, it's allowed people who uh, have difficulties attending physically to participate. Um, it's really good for like referring people to uh, you know information. You know, there was a an OCD. UK conference the other week again it was all virtually and then when we went to the support group the following week you know we could show slides of what we'd learned and stuff so mm-hmm. it's um you know it sort of has its benefits as well you know but mm-hmm. can't wait to sit in a room with some people that'd be amazing mm-hmm. yeah. well just, just coming back to something you said about um you didn't know that it was OCD that you had during the t- the whole time you were at NME and it was only afterwards, how did it come about that you realised this is what was going on for you? Well, no, I, I actually I actually got diagnosed the year you're talking about. I actually got diagnosed um, in 2008. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, at uh, the Maudsley in South London. Mm. Uh, I always get it, Centre for Anxiety and Trauma Disorders. I always get the acronym wrong. Um but yeah, I, I got diagnosed with OCD and there's all these stats that float around about OCD about how long it takes to get a diagnosis and then how long it takes to get the right treatment and they're, they're horrifying figures. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, to add on to mine, it was you know, probably nine years before I got the right diagnosis and then I would say probably about probably about the same again before I accepted the diagnosis Um, because I went off after basically being told what was wrong with me Um, I went off and didn't accept it you know did a whole load of therapy that was the wrong kind of therapy and um, just you know fan the flames a bit really uh, I don't really know what that was about either you know I think that again I think that actually it was maybe you know being told I had OCD and what I thought OCD was wasn't what I had mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, but what was your original question because again I've lost my train of thought oh, it was sort of um, when it was that you came to realise this is what was going on for you really all the, all those um all the hardship that you were going through when it finally sort of 
yeah, you got your you got your diagnosis. It sounds like in in two thousand and eight, and yeah, I, I I think that my actual like I said, I'd always been that kind of like, you know high functioning person, you know, like you know, enemy was a particularly stressy job. Mm. You know, I went and you know sat in the big chair of um, you know and then edited a magazine for six years after that. But it actually probably took the one period of my life where it won to actually lead me to where I needed to go. So in 2017, uh, and I, I don't say this dismissively, I say this almost in the same way that the mad COVID people do in terms of like almost reclaiming the word, but, you know, I really did lose the plot. Um, you know, it's the one time that it, 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 it won, you know. And that led me to finding the support group and that led to them telling me about, um, you know, who I, who and what, and what kind of uh, treatment I needed, and me finding that person, and then me getting a referral back to CADA mm -hmm. that I'd been diagnosed by uh, all those years before, and then finally getting the right treatment, which happened this summer. Mm -hmm. I had my first kind of round of CBT and ERP, uh, like exposure re response prevention, mm -hmm. um, you know, just if anyone didn't know what that was um and yeah so <laughs> despite kind of having a long history with this stuff i actually really feel like it's only really been the last three years that have been um you know where i've done the right things you know where I, i've done what i needed to do to try to get better really i just thought that it was like what I don't know, I just was so, I just remember that time in me, and like I say, you know, it's such a contradiction because I now remember it so fondly, and, um, but there's so many times, and not even just enemy, but there's been so many times in my career where, you know, I just can't even explain, I can't even explain how horrendous it was. Mm. You know, I'm a writer, and I think I'm a pre pretty good writer, and writing about OCD, which is a you know, this is a problem because someone's asked me to write a book about OCD, which I'd really like to do. Mm. Actually writing about what it's like or explaining, articulating what it's like is just, I mean, it's just, I, I mean, it's just the hardest, it's the hardest thing I've ever tried to do with words, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine because there's also an element of re-triggering things whilst it's happening. So you're sort of having to go into that headspace to describe totally. it and then you're in it. Totally. I mean, I mean it's, it's also as well, like, it's like I just said to you before, like, you know, like, you seem a nice person, you get it, right? <laughs> but there have been times if I'd say, and this is a you know very mild example, but when I said, oh, I obsess the people thought I might be a serial killer, mm -hmm. right? Like, if I'm writing about that, then there's, oh my God, are people going to see that written down and then they're going to think... Mm -hmm. Is just they're, they're yeah. going to be like, all oh, right, this this guy's a serial killer because yeah. you know it's it, how do you understand it unless you had that experience? You know, yeah. Yeah. I have a thing with um, uh, I mean, it's what a lot of my treatment has been about. But I have a thing about eyebrows. I have a thing about uh, you know, like a sort of facial uh, responses. So, you know, say someone raises an eyebrow, 
or if someone blinks when I say something, then that means this or that means that, you know, like, mm. and uh, I the reason why I say that is obviously that's not something that I can when I'm writing about it, but, and it comes back to the sleep thing as well, you know, like, it, it's not as bad when I've had proper sleep, but it's like anything and everything can trigger you, mm. you know, mm. and, but you have to find that because if you didn't, you would have no life worth living. But, and again, you know, it's, it's like there was, a, there was a talk at the OCD conference, the OCD UK conference, about like living and loving someone with OCD. And I sent the link, and I, I was really not sure whether I should have done it when I did it. I was like, oh, well, you know, is this me being a bit, I don't know, self absorbed? But I sent that link to a couple of my friends uh, because I was like, well, you know, like my, my best friends, you know, where I was like, oh, well, you know, we've been friends for such a long time. Um, they've been with me through some stuff. Maybe if they've got time, and who's got time anymore? But if they've got time and they can watch this, maybe they'll understand me a bit better, you know, and that'd be good for our friendship or whatever. And I was amazed by how many people actually did watch it. Like, it really meant the world to me. But at the same time, I've never really wanted to be treated any different to anyone because mm. um, with OCD, you don't you don't get better if people treat you differently because you have to be challenged on your thoughts and obsessions. Mm. You know, you have to you have to live with the discomfort of doubt. Mm. Um, so actually, trying to make the world what would be really painless. Um, you know, it, it isn't the way to go, you know. So, again, I'm waffling. No, I think what I can hear you say is that it's that sort of, it's a bit paradoxical. So, like, you in the OCD sort of mindset, once when you're in the process, you're kind of wanting the reassurance from everyone, but then if everyone were to sort of provide the conditions where everything is reassured, it's not then addressing what's going on for you, which is the sort of, um, in a, that word you use doubt is such a powerful word because it's it's the experience of doubt and knowing that you don't know what the outcome is going to be we don't know what the future is going to be and we don't know where we're going to land and the fear of thinking it's going to land one way or the other and acknowledging the the discomfort of the not knowing it, it sounds like you're saying that's part of the process of overcoming OCD is learning to overcome the challenge of uncertainty rather than removing uncertainty. Oh, I mean, that's um, that's absolutely bang on. Mm. I mean, like, you know, reassurance is the enemy of OCD. Mm. You know, mm. like, it's the, it's the thing that you want to make yourself feel better, but you don't feel better for very long, and it just emboldens the, the problem. Mm. Um, I mean, Joe, my friend Joe uh, from Mad COVID. Mm who has had um, you know, extensive treatment for OCD and had a, you know, she is one of the most inspiring people I know for what she's been through and where she's at. And she basically, well, I was telling her the other day about a new obsession I had or a new, it doesn't grammatically work, but a new OCD, you know. And she said, you know, don't know, don't care. And ultimately that's kind of what it comes down to. Mm. in that like you kind of have to get yourself to a place and I'm going to use a serial killer 
example, right? Where you would be like, oh, maybe people think I'm a serial killer. Well, I'm never going to know for sure. I don't care. You know? Mm. Like, ultimately, like, for all the complexities of, um, you know, OCD treatment, it comes down to that is just, it's just not caring. You know, again, that's sort of, you know, it's not quite as simple as that because, you know, we don't want to live our lives where we don't care what other people think. And um, so it gets a bit more complicated because you need to try and separate, uh, you know, what's an OCD thought and what isn't. That's hard work. Talk about that in group all the time. And I normally think if anyone is listening to this and thinking, well, what is the difference? You know, I think there's, there's an urgency to OCD thoughts that isn't there with more regular thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it comes down to just uh, uh, living with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you were talking about your knives thing, mm-hmm. um, I know from my experience of talking to people who had similar stuff on like the theme of harm within OCD that you know, the, the ERP was often to hold a knife to their skin, mm. like, repeatedly until they basically became bored or, or stopped being uncomfortable with it. Um, but it's ultimately what you, wouldn't, what you shouldn't do is put away the knives. You know, that's, mm. like, the worst thing you could do because mm. then it is, there's some legitimacy to it. Mm. Whereas, like, you know, if you can identify when a thought is OCD, then you should never give OCD any credibility because there isn't any to it. You know? mm. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Do you think, I thought it was really interesting when I was, uh, when you were talking about, you know, how you'd become a therapist, you were a journalist and then you became a therapist. Mm. Because I definitely think that, um, like I'm hugely interested in people. Mm. Um, I guess a lot of that comes from, you know, wanting to try and understand myself. Um, do you think there's a link between you know being a journalist and interviewing people and you being a therapist yeah I think so yeah I think there's a strong link between the skill set of being able to interview someone and being a a listener in therapy I see a big similarity I did um, I interviewed uh, Anna Paquin recently uh, from True Blood uh, like the New Zealand actress is in like the old X Men movies and stuff as well. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and I interviewed her recently, and kind of halfway through, uh, she she was like, "Oh, this is like being in therapy." And I was a little bit like, obviously being OCD and completely overthinking everything and worrying about everything, as you might have picked up on by the fact that at the end of half the things I'm saying here, I go, oh, "I'm waffling," you know. Like we're we're all OCD people are always always thinking. Um, and she said to me, this is like being in therapy. And I spent a bit of time thinking, oh, is that a bad thing? But actually, I just think that it's, I don't know, it's just quite core cool to kind of like what we do, mm. you know? Like, um, and I always found a bit with like music journalism as well, that, you know, I'm a musician myself, and actually writing about music, inverted commas, music, it's quite boring. Mm. You know, writing about people isn't mm. um, Write about emotions and trauma experiences, you know, mm. that stuff is really interesting. And I've always kind of believed that, uh, you know, in order to really understand music, you kind of have to understand the person who's made it, you know, and mm. 
uh, or film or telly or you know whatever. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm interested to say that because that's kind of what I've always thought really. Mm. That the, the two um, disciplines are sort of bedfellows really. Yeah, I definitely think so. And exactly like what you're saying about, you know, if I think of myself as a music fan, what makes me a fan is is just as much about the stories behind the bands and their trajectories and the hardships and what they went through. And it's interesting when you're talking about NME and what got you, you know, your first experience of NME reading about Kirk Bain. Right there, you're reading about someone who's just ended their life and the two things are so intrinsically connected wanting to know about someone's history and well-being seems to be quite specific as well to rock music well maybe not I don't know about nowadays but certainly at that time it was so interconnected and sometimes I feel like that's what was drawing people in more than the actual music at times not always but at times no totally and I think also you know my favourite bands there's a bit of a sort of world rumble going on for you know who's top of the pile but I, you know I would always say my favourite band are the Ramones mm. um, and I found out probably well around the time I got my uh, my second diagnosis that Joey Ramone the singer in that band was uh, he had OCD okay. um, and it was Again, it almost became like that George Ezra thing I was talking about, mm. where I loved the music so much more, which I didn't even think was possible, because I now understood more about where it was coming from. Mm. You know, mm. Like, you know, having OCD, I can hear, I can hear the OCD in the music. Mm. You know. Mm. seems like there's there's a connection there between who you were um the careers you were drawn to and that being something about meeting the people who are open to being human in a way because because in a way you're describing humanity and music is a sort of expression of humanity and I don't know much about gaming but I'm I'm guessing there's a similarity there and with you mentioned Marvel the Marvel comics and stuff there's something about it that sort of gets to the crux of, of the root of the human condition in all of it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I always think, you know, with games and stuff, the, the thing that's really interesting about games is to, uh, and there's definitely a flip side of this, mm. 
which has risen to the surface in a bubbly, toxic mess in recent years. But I, I generally find with games that there's so many people involved with it who are really smart, progressive people. You know, um, it's you know kind of attracts people who you know big hearts, big brains. You know, so. But I think that, um, yeah, I think that again, you know, like I remember when I was a little lad, and the nursery like calling in my mum and um, basically saying that the other boys were pissed off. Not pissed off, that's not what you would say to my mum in 1983. Mm. But the other boys didn't understand why I always wanted to hug them. Mm. It sounds a bit weird all these years off. But I think that I've just always... And, you know, there might even be people who hear this who, you know... I've crossed paths with in work or, you know, in my time and being in a band or, or being a journalist or any of the things I've done in my life. And they might hear this and go, that doesn't sound like the person that I know. But I just have always believed what I think are quite humanist principles. Like, I've, And because of what I do, I've always just tried to explore that, really. Um, and I must sometimes feel like I haven't even completely got started doing it because I want to write the book I'm kind of working on and explore that stuff more. But yeah, it's not even kind of, I guess there's even a degree of activism to it in a way where I just uh, not even just want to understand people more, but almost want to celebrate people more, really, you know, like... And, and not in a sort of like a, a vacuous or puff piece kind of, yeah, this person did this kind of way, but just, I think it's amazing that, you know, we came down from the trees and, you know, sure, we kind of made spears and killed a lot of other things, but, you know, with music, which is, you know, top of the pile in terms of the creative endeavours that matter to me, you know, sometimes, I was, I was listening to, uh, there's a band called Morphine, you know about Morphine? No, I don't. I don't know. I They're don't from know. the late 90s, and um, really sad story. The singer, he, uh, a guy called Mark Sandman, he collapsed on stage for mm-hmm. uh, a heart attack, and he died. This is in 1999, I think. Okay. Like, but they made five records before that, um, and there's a documentary that's made about him called uh, Mark Sandman, A Cure for Pain. Um, and it's an, an, an amazing documentary and I was listening to um, that song which the documentary was named after yesterday and I've heard that song you know hundreds and hundreds of times I've liked that band back all my life really unique band like bass player drummer saxophone bass player who was Mark Sandman only had two bass uh, only had two strings of his bass it's quite bluesy kind of quite smoky um, very evocative music and I was listening to that song and I was just thinking you know so much the world has just felt so chaotic this year and I was listening to that song and I was just thinking it's so amazing that like our species can make this to that can feel this, that can express this. It was just the most amazing thing. I was just texting a lot of my friends, just going like, hey, listen to this song. Like, it's a bit weird. 
but it was almost like I just felt like oh, people needed to hear it, like people needed to be reminded of what we could all be. you're a musician as well so there's that extra layer it's the making of music as a sort of therapeutic tool in a way or it does something to you then the physical impact of music that you're hearing and what that does to you and how it gets you through and everything sort of in between what the way sounds affect us and sort of how they connect to our individual body parts you know like um i've said it in a previous episode but like when people describe getting a tingle, like a, a particular song will make will send a shiver down the spine. Another song will like give you like a lurch in the stomach. It, there's something very physical and embodied about these experiences, and like being drugged in some way. <laughs> um. So yeah, it, it is fascinating. Like it's some kind of um connective language that is somehow there in the world that was already there and then we somehow tapped into it it's it's really fascinating well, you're going deep oh i can't i have that tendency sorry no it's good it's good it's almost like i, I spent hours of the day reading about uh, you know theories about how you know language shapes um almost like our realities you know does something exist if there isn't a word for it or, mm. or whatever you know like um thinking thinking when it's healthy and not in an ocd way is good you know i'm all for it um it's weird though isn't it because i was thinking yesterday basically i, I was watching i found myself on it watching a clip on youtube so the reason why I was watching the documentary about morphine is going to do this website with Lindy heaven which is about me trying to find the bands that i loved as a teenager and who split up and kind of what happened next, basically. And mm. um, I'm, uh, I'm speaking to um, Dana Colley, who was the saxophone player in Morphine, so I was just doing a bit of research. And I watched the documentary, had loads of emotion, and then I watched 
morphine when they were on Beavis and Butter. Do you know Beavis and Butter? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I basically realised by the end of the Beavis and Butter clip that uh, what they did basically has rendered music journalism irrelevant because it was so brilliant. Mm-hmm. However, music journalism is inherently preposterous. Writing about something that you hear, that's kind of crazy in itself, but also it's just so many different things. Like, mm-hmm. are you trying to uh, entertain people? Are you trying to take people closer to something that they already love? Are you trying to say whether it's uh, good or bad, which I think is futile anyway? It's not a discipline that has any end goal, really, but I love it so much because there's so much space within it to do all of those things. Mm. Um, you know, ultimately, if you're going to say to me what it's about, you know, as someone that's, you know, worked at a magazine for a long time, worked at multiple magazines for a long time, I think it's about, you know, trying to uh, bring people closer to things. They look, but ultimately, that's what I think it's all about. And therefore, I think it is about entertainment. And it is about, you know, access. And it is about insight and all those things. But it's, um, it's almost like the what you have just said about it being a language, it's almost like kind of writing about music is trying to decipher that language, mm. which is impossible and can never be done, but it's a noble effort to try and do it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And did you find a difference between that experience at Enemy and that experience at Kerrang? Because then you became editor of Kerrang. Yeah. Was that a different experience? I think that I was... I think my OCD was the worst it's ever been when I was at the Rock Mac. I'm still feeling, I'm really proud of things that I did there and I'm really proud of like what uh, I created and I worked with some really good people um, and think we did some good stuff. But like so many things in my life, I wish I hadn't had to do it through the, um, the, through the filter of OCD. You know, like there's a lot of there's a lot with OCD where people almost like talk about the grief that they feel for things that the disorder has robbed them of. Mm. I don't totally have that because I've always fought. You know, I'm not saying other people don't fight, but there's always been a you know, like my mum behind me just ordering me to go on um, and all that stuff. But I do grieve sometimes for what uh, what could have been. You know, or what things would have been like if I hadn't have had this. Because I spent a lot of time at the Rock Mag, just so anxious, like so scared, so insecure. You know, I look back on it and I, I'm, I'm in a place at the moment where I just feel, you know, just upset about it, really. You know, like I, I'm not really in a place where I'm like, that was amazing. You know, I'm, I'm in a place of, oh my God, I was just so ill. And I was just like going, I was just going into work every day and, you know, really trying to get through it. But I was really ill, you know. Mm. Um, I did six years there, which is like, I think the third longest tenure of anyone, of anyone who'd edited it, you know. And like I say, there's some things we did that I think are brilliant, but just so ill, you know. Mm. Well, you were probably dealing with, I mean, you know, being an editor of a rock magazine, there's a lot of, I imagine, quite a lot of politics going on around that as well, because um, in terms of what's going on with the bands, who you who you choose or don't choose, you, I guess you would have gone from a position of an ME where you're sort of the one experiencing and going out and almost enjoying the price. I say enjoy lightly, but I mean sort of 
you know, you're going out and doing the interviews and um, being set tasks to then being somebody who is sort of making some of those harder decisions about who's going to go in and isn't and managing a team. And and I don't know, you know, some maybe dark things. I mean, the rock world is full of quite dark things as well. So I, I can imagine it was actually a very different kind of role that you were in there that, that was very heavily stressful. Hey, I, um, I, I always think that OCD is, and again, can't, this is all conjecture. You know, mm. This is like a good feeling rather than kind of knowing this for sure. But mm. I think that OCD is very influenced by the fears of the age. You know, I think that my obsession about contamination and AIDS that happened to me when I was at university was because in some way I grew up with terrifying portrayals of AIDS, mm. you know, on television or in magazines. And I was young and susceptible to that stuff and thought about things a lot. But that's my theory. There are a lot of people who have uh, obsessions uh, about paedophilia, mm. that people think they might be a paedophile. I have to say that I'm lucky that that, and obviously this gets really complicated because that's not a fear that you want to go talk to a stranger about, mm. you know, because how are they going to understand that? Are they going to misunderstand that? Mm. It's, it's terrifying. Well, what is worse than being a pedophile, right? Mm. And, but I am really lucky that I have only really been glanced with that uh, facet of OCD. It's not something which has taken away years and years and years of my life, like some people I know. But when I was at uh, the Rock Mag, you know, Ian Watkins, mm. Lost Profits, yeah. you know, he, I crossed paths with that guy all the time. And there was something about, like, I found it unbelievably triggering. Mm-hmm. But, like, who do you talk to about that? Like, mm-hmm. I can't talk to my line manager about that, you know? Like, that's not really our magazine at work anyway. There's not really that formality. Mm-hmm. Um, how do I even explain OCD? How do I even explain? But, you know, when he got arrested and charged, mm-hmm. the OCD in me became, oh, well, are people going to think that about me because he's been in the magazine that I edit all the time, mm-hmm. you know? But which just sounds like a daft worry, but with OCD, it's like that, like yeah. a tsunami, you know? Mm-hmm. And that stuff was, I mean, I, I could list examples, like, you know, all day long of mm-hmm. not things to that extremity, but it was an unbelievable amount, it was an unbelievable amount of pressure. Mm-hmm. And also, I was like, you know, I don't know, I was, I was young, but I was like 31. I had come off the back of my OCD being very, very bad, like at the end of Ed- at the end of enemy. And it comes back to that thing of you know, kind of almost like wishing, wishing you hadn't have had to kind of think about OCD that you could just think about the job. Mm. Um, yeah, it's got a bit doomy, hasn't it? No, but you're describing the complexity of that, I think, really well because you're. Because I'm just thinking, I, I'm just imagining actually just how harrowing that is. First of all, anyway, when you've crossed paths with someone numerous times and then you learn something like that about them, it even without OCD, that is such a harrowing, uncanny, horrible shiver, you know, that kind of uh, feeling of like, I knew that person. And it, it already sort of makes 
someone sort of question themselves anyway, you know, like, did I know that about them? And, and if not, you know, what does that say about me? And then you start questioning the whole of humanity, like who else is out there that I know, you know, all of that. So even when you don't have OCD, that would be going on. But then when you, when you have OCD on top of it, and that's particularly one of, one of your triggers, um, that that would just escalate and spiral. And then adding that layer of complexity on what you're just saying about having no one to talk to about it and yet you're in a role where you're the one having to manage everybody and presumably people within the office were also kind of having their own experiences and maybe you're looking after them as well it's it's a really messy um environment and it, it kind of exemplifies a bit of what you were saying before about the support that's out there for people you know we wouldn't we wouldn't ever imagine that a music magazine would require some kind of mental health support network around what's going on but if you unpick it and look at scenarios like that that would be a situation where perhaps having someone to talk to there or having mental health awareness within the magazine would be helpful and it wasn't there so you know I guess what I'm saying is no wonder it would have been such a triggering experience it's really complex well, I mean, without, you know, there were loads of things, there were loads of things I got wrong, you know, there was loads of, I don't think, I don't want to be a manager again, mm. you know, I kind of basically decided that what I want to do with the rest of my life isn't about managing people, mm. um, I, um, you know, you, you, you learn from who, you learn from your own experiences and I, I don't think I've always had amazing managers myself, so there wasn't really a you know, a, a visual, there wasn't really a guide really or anything to sort of really model me on, you know. Mm. But I also, I think I was the first editor, maybe ever, no, not ever, but for years, like decades, to have not like come through the ranks. So I was like a, you know, an outsider really. And there was also this, uh, there was also this feeling that this perception that like I'd come from the enemy, so like what do they understand about this world? Mm. You know, mm. um, I mean, admit, you know, conversely, when I was enemy, I was always getting you know kind of rudged on by Alex Miller and Hamish McVeigh for putting you know Slayer on the office stereo, <laughs> so I still couldn't really kind of like find like where I was supposed to be to be honest. But mm. there was definitely a feeling, you know, of like who's this guy? He's not one of us. Not you know, pointing the finger at anyone, but there was this period where um, just loads of Twitter accounts, like fake Twitter accounts were set up, like, as me. Oh. And they would just, like, tweet me and be like, we know you're a fraud. Like, we know you're not. Um, you know, we know you're faking it. And you'd just be like, with OCD, when you can be so paranoid and you can be so anxious... I would be looking around the office and thinking, are these people, are these people, is this coming from people I know? Like, what am I doing wrong? And, mm. you know, I feel like I just spent my entire time there just wanting people to like, which, you know, isn't really what, you know, an editor, you know, it shouldn't really matter so much, really, when you're an editor, you know, like, you have to, you have to make kind of hard decisions and, um, you know, not always do popular things, but I would, I just wanted people to like me because, 
I just I just felt sort of scared and anxious all the time. Mm. And this is probably the deepest I've kind of got about it all, to be honest, uh, outside of a, a therapy room. And I do have to say, please do keep this in, that mm-hmm. I was super proud to get that job. And I am super proud of a lot of things I did. And I met some people who, you know, remain hugely inspiring and important to me. Mm. But it was not a job that, uh, it was not a job that, was helpful to have OCD in any way. There's nothing helpful about having OCD, but particularly it was it was a difficult job for what I was going through. Yeah, I I'm I am mindful of like what you're saying that um some of the some of the content of this interview has gone quite deep, and I guess I just wanted to check in and check that you're all right. And also, <laughs> you, you're... It's a therapist thing to say. <laughs> um, no, I, I think I'm all right. Actually, I've mm. been quite. There's a few things I sort of wanted to get off my chest a little bit, and I feel like I've kind of done that a bit. But I think you're a really good interviewer. So. Oh, thank you. Um, do you, before we kind of wrap it up, do you mind if I go for uh, a wee? Oh, of course, yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, I might squeeze a cigarette in as well, quick. Okay, so yeah, that's fine. I'll just wait here, no worries. Cool. Cool. All right, see you. See wondered first of all if um if there was anything you specifically wanted to talk about that we haven't spoken about i guess just to reiterate what i said before about about people who maybe suspect they have ocd or have had a diagnosis for ocd 
uh, to, which really does feel, uh, you know, by its very nature, the disorder is so consuming and, you know, I cannot even reiterate how distressing and difficult it is. But there is, you know, you're not alone. Again, you know, that phrase has been used so many times that it sometimes feels slightly redundant, but it's true, you know, if you can find a support group, there's a woman called Lily Bailey. There's a great chat on Twitter, I believe it's every Wednesday, called the OCD Talk Hour. You know, there's lots of people who, whether they're advocates or professionals, you know, give a, a, a lot of really good advice on OCD on Twitter or uh, on other platforms. There's a amazing podcast called The OCD Stories. Uh, by a guy called Stuart Ralph. That, I'm not sure how you would feel about this being a therapist yourself, but you know, it's basically kind of like f- free therapy. You know, kind of every week, um, really kind of delves into some of the the nuances of OCD. There's, I think that one of the worst things you can do with OCD is to isolate yourself. You know, I think that human contact and community and being outside of your own head is as helpful as anything. And if you can connect yourself to this OCD community that exists, I think it can be really, really beneficial for people. So take heed to the fact that I spent a whole load of time going through hell without any of that. And I'm so grateful that I found it in the end. Um, You know, if I can save people a little bit of time by getting to it sooner, then uh, I think that's the most important thing I could say, to be honest. Yeah, thank you. And if if people wanted to contact you... You know, I'm on Twitter. I've got a ton of followers. I talk about OCD all the time. Mm. I'm totally cool when people reach out. I guess I'm just like anyone in that I have so much stuff I have to do in my life that I sometimes feel bad when I'm not as available as Mm. I would like to be. And also, you know, I, I, I have no training or... You know, I guess I'm like anyone in the sense that, like, I have loads of things I have to do and not always available as I would like to be. But, and also, I'm, I'm no replacement for a therapist, but I am always happy when people reach out to me, uh, you know, when time allows to try and direct them to someone who could be more useful than me. Mm-hmm. And I think that most people who have OCD and, you know, related disorders or... You know, I have lots of friends with ADHD. You know, these very, like, misunderstood illnesses. Um, most people I know um, are enthusiastic about trying to help other people because, you know, it helps us by doing that. But also there's a massive amount of empathy that comes from having been through that stuff yourself, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, how, how how can people find you? My Twitter handle is James Jam McMahon. Okay. My website is jamesjammcmahon.com. I believe that's my Instagram handle as well. Okay. Yeah, I'm here, there and everywhere. Yeah. Maybe like, track me down at a Doncaster Rovers match, <laughs> if we're ever allowed to do that ever again. Yeah. <sighs> what's what's next for you in that sense so what um career-wise because you're you're a freelancer now aren't you yeah what's life like now work-wise for you i think that i I, you know i had had a really bad time kind of three three years ago i didn't really like become a freelancer out of choice but more i needed to try and make a living while also getting better Mm. but i feel like i've actually kind of found myself in a 
place where I, you know, I've always had interests beyond music. You know, I've always been interested in writing about other things. Uh, you know, whether it's you know film or telly or video games, but also you know mental health stuff. Or I do a newsletter, a weekly newsletter called Spook, which is about true crime and the paranormal and the weird stuff. There's a sign up link at my website, and I guess I've sort of found myself in a bit of a place where I just have the space to try and grow the creative endeavors that I'm interested in. So I've been approached numerous times in my life about writing a book. I have messed every opportunity up because of my OCD. And I find the idea of doing a book unbelievably triggering for some reason. But this time around, I've found someone and I'm working with that I think really gets me and gets it. And I'm really committed to trying to get that done. Like I said before about this thing, Indie Heaven, that's a huge kind of passion project of mine at the moment. Um, and I'm just trying to write like in important things in as many places as will have me. I think that just the financial realities of, you know, being a freelance journalist in 2020 isn't something that would, I'm always kind of trying to look for where there's a bit more like stability there. I'm not totally sure that the way that I live my life right now isn't how I would or could live it forever, but I definitely feel at the moment like I'm trying to build something, like I'm trying to build things and you know, almost make that life that I was talking about at the beginning of wanting to be myself, you know, just want the freedom to, 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 to be me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> but no, it's definitely nice talking. Andy, thank you, James. Take care. to James and thank you to everybody for listening. Don't forget to follow Sound Effects Podcast on Twitter at Sound Effects Pod or you can follow Sound Effects on Instagram that's sound underscore effects underscore podcast. Please get in touch. Please let me know what you thought of this episode and let me know what you think of other episodes. I really love having feedback. It really makes my day. You can tweet me at Sound Effects Pod. You can email me at soundeffectspodcast at gmail.com. Um, leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. I really like getting reviews on there and um, it really helps me with my ratings. If, if you can leave a review on there, it would be so helpful to me. Obviously, um, a lot of what was mentioned in this episode may have resonated with some of you or may have intrigued some of you and may have been um, an education for some of you. I don't know. So, um, underneath this episode, I've written down a whole load of numbers and website addresses to get hold of support, and I'll mention them now as well. So, 
ocdaction.org.uk. Their helpline is 0845 390 6232. There's the ocdstories.com, ocduk.org, and uh, Lily Bailey, who is on Twitter and does the OCD Talk Hour. You can find her at Lily Bailey UK. That's Lily, spelled L I L Y, Bailey, B A I L E Y. And that's the OCD Talk Hour. The OCD Chronicles is on James's website page, which is jamesjammcmahon.com forward slash the OCD Chronicles. That's McMahon spelt M C M A H O N. And if you don't feel comfortable about directly approaching a GP with this, as I said, go to one of these um, support groups first because there'll be a lot of people there who maybe do have the information you need and can direct you there. There are lots of therapists out there who do understand OCD and will get you and do understand the nature of intrusive thinking and intrusive images and it's just a case of finding them and I know that's much easier said than done. I would really recommend if you're approaching a therapist do ask them explicitly at the outset if they have experience of working with intrusive thoughts in OCD. If the answer is no or you don't like their answer find someone who does understand because that will make a huge difference to your experience. Thank you all for listening. Take care.